And welcome to episode 67 of On Liberty, live from the Centre of Independent Studies in Sydney. I'm your host, Tom Switzer. Now, with the COVID crisis, Australia's federation is increasingly fractured, isn't it? And just think of the deep policy divisions between the Commonwealth and the states over how to handle the pandemic. Just think of the constant bickering between the Prime Minister and various state premiers. Well, a new book casts serious doubts about the origins of Federation in 1901. William Oliver Coleman is author of Their Fiery Cross of Union, a retelling of the creation of the Australian Federation, 1889 to 1914. It's published by our friends at Connor Court. G'day, William. Welcome to CIS. Oh, g'day, Tom, and thanks. Now, listen, mate, uh, there have been so many books and scholarly journal articles published about Federation. Uh, why do we need another book? <laughs> because we need some truth about the Federation of 1901. Almost every page of the history of the Federation of 1901 is affirmative history, which is to say it's written under the premise that the Federation of 1901 was noble in its origins and was for the good in its effect. Almost every page is at bottom a celebration and a giving thanks for 1901. What we can do within Australia is something more objective, and that's what the book Fiery Cross tries to do. It wants to take off the tinsel and put the warts back on the whole process. Yeah, but according to most historians, and indeed many Australians to this day, uh, I think the widespread view is that since uh, Federation in 1901, the Commonwealth was intended as, a, as an expression of nationality, yet you're sceptical. Why? Well, I would ask what nationality was the Commonwealth of 1901 intended to express? I would say it was not an Australian nationality. On the contrary, it was Britishness. Thus, it was a Union Jack and no other flag, which was raised in hundreds of schoolyards across the country on the 9th of May, 1901, to mark the opening of the first Commonwealth Parliament. And there's a photo of that in, in the book, by the way. I would say that 1901 actually delayed the expression of Australianness. So are you saying then that in 1901, Australians, generally speaking, still saw themselves as, if you like, British race patriots and not necessarily as Australians? Well, yes, briefly, but I think the... the, the underlying point is that any, at any moment in time, we have several identities. A given person will have very frequently a religious identity, an occupational identity, a, a class identity, an, an ethnic or, or, or cultural identity. And finally, they will have what you might call a political or civil identity. That is that there is some sovereign power to which they will give allegiance. That's their political or civil identity. And undoubtedly, at the beginning of the 20th century, the political or civil identities of all Australians was British. It, Britain was the sovereign power and no other to which they gave allegiance. Yes. Yeah, well, in your book, um, you make the point that um, the new Commonwealth was simply, quote, a stage in the growth of empire, which would intensify the imperial bond between greater Britons. Well, that's right. The most common construction 
of what the Australian Federation was in 1901 was that it was a step towards imperial federation when mm. Great Britain and what were called the dominions or soon to be called the dominions would create an imperial um, federation. Yeah, so it was a stage in, in the growth of the empire. Okay, so you're, you're quite sceptical about the founding fathers of federation. Uh, what are the downsides here? What are the downsides you address in your book? Well, federation, I believe, was um, tainted in process. It, it's much vaunted democracy, I think, was quite mechanical at, at best, um, frequently seriously defective, and at points quite marred by, by ballot fraud. It was botched in execution. I think the, the constitution is, is in several important ways an, unport, uh, an unfortunate document. And it was harmful in most of it, I wouldn't say all, harmful in most of its effects in the first decade, say, of federation. We were a collection of uh, colonies far removed from the Western world throughout the 19th century. Uh, I suppose the question here is in the, in the 1890s, did we need to federate? I think it's agreed by all historians, including all those historians who I, I say are writing under an affirmative premise, that there was no imperative to federate in the 1890s. No defence imperative as such. Indeed, at the very end of the period, the, the American annexation of Hawaii, the Philippines and American Samoa, though it probably wasn't realised at the time, made Australian security more secure uh, than ever. So um, I don't think there was any security imperative, and that's the most important imperative at all to any creation of any political structure. Well, what did the colonies get out of it? I mean, because I noticed that in your book, you make it very clear that Sydney voted no, uh, whereas Melbourne enthusiastically supported federation. So what was it for the colonies, the different colonies well, at the time? Uh, well, um, that's that's a very sort of live um, question. What was the was there a differential impact of federation on the separate colonies or states as they became? Yes, it's true. I mean, it's just well known that mm. Victoria and Melbourne were enthusiastically in favour of federation, while New South Wales and Queensland were very um, split. And there's there's really I mean, you could advance a theory that Victoria was going to bet it and New South Wales was going to be harmed. Um, certainly, it is true that the classic theory of that division between Victoria and New South Wales was that Victoria was protectionist and looking forward to, a, to sequestering, if you like, New South Wales market from the rest of the world by a tariff around the entirety of Australia. Well, New South Wales, on the contrast, was free trade. Mm, Look, mm. there's something in that. I don't know how much is in that though because it's because it's a it's a fact that free traders in new south wales were often federationists often very ardent federationists and free traders in victoria and let's not forget there was a strong free trade or at least a vocal free trade party within victoria that was minority it was also in favor of federation so i think possibly a better theory is that the 1890s the early 1890s in particular, constituted a crisis for Victoria the way it didn't for New South Wales. I mean, this can be just measured by the 
uh, calibrating the economic significance of the economic crisis in Victoria versus New South Wales. And so in Victoria, there was a, a sense that Victoria was seeking a needed, a continental solution for its problems. It could no longer solve its problems by itself, if you like, and federation was, was the way to get that continental solution. We'll talk about these divisions uh, among the states later on in the show. We'll certainly address the question of uh, trade protectionism. But we do have a question here from Christopher Carr. He's one of our regular viewers. Thank you, Christopher, tuning in. He asks you, William, was Britain keen to see federation as soon as possible? Oh, absolutely. Um, the Colonial Conference, as it was called, of 1897, in, in the middle of, of, of a rather sensitive time, in the federation process. Um, at that conference, under the leadership of the colonial secretary, Joseph Chamberlain, it affirmed very squarely that um, in favour of um, Australian federation. Um, the British press was um, keenly in favour of um, federation. Uh, now, you might ask why they were, were so keen for it. Look, um, the real beginning of federation um, can really be traced to a conversation between Lord Carrington, the governor of New South Wales, and Sir Henry Parks in, mm -hmm. um, in 1889, where um, Lord Carrington just expressed how irksome it was to have to deal with um, so many colonies. There were six colonies in Australia and six governors. Well, in Canada, which of course had federated, there was just a single um, governor or governor general, as we would call it. How convenient. So I do think in a managerial sense, federation was approved by the British government as sort of a convenient and efficiency-making thing. So in other words, what you're saying here is the British fed us our independence, the British fed Australia our independence, whereas, say, the Americans fought for their independence against the British more than 100 years earlier. Oh, look, the contrast between... Australia and the United States uh, could not be more profound or more acute right. in that respect, which you have risen, uh, which you have, you have stressed. I mean, I wouldn't say that the British literally gave it. It was a local movement, but the British, if you like, from the important sideline, sort of cheered it on. Okay, let me push back a bit about your thesis. Yeah. Answer the following questions. Without federation... In 1901, yep. what happens to our defence forces? Well, within the first um, 14 years of Federation, um, the Australian defence forces were severely damaged by the creation of the Commonwealth. Prior to 1901, you had six defence forces throughout the 1890s. They'd been increasing their coordination in matters of equipment, of uniform, of, of command, and they had fired all the shots fired in anger in the Boer War and won all the three Victoria Crosses, the state or colonial forces. The Commonwealth forces had done no such. So what I'm trying to say is that the, the military was in fairly good shape in 1901, but the Commonwealth um, got rid of the volunteerism, which was previously the foundation of Australia's military forces and replaced it with a bureaucratised compulsion, in particular epitomised by the Boy Conscription Programme um, legislated in 1910, which was implemented in, in 1912. 
and which was, I mean, uniformly um, useless for the for the purpose of defence. So I would say that, mm. with the important exception of the Navy, which the Commonwealth created in 1910, but that important mm. exception, um, the creation of the Commonwealth was in those first 14 years deleterious to Australia's defence. Fascinating. Yeah, I never thought of it like that. Okay, what about without federation? What happens to immigration? How do the states control immigration? Because, of course, a central a legitimating idea behind nationhood in 1901 was the white Australia policy, which, of course, uh, restricted immigration primarily from Asia to keep uh, out of the country cheap Asian labour. So the question, again, without federation, how would the states address immigration? William Coleman. Right. Well, I think we can see in the 1880s and the 1890s all the colonies passed immigration restriction legislation aimed at Asians in particular. Uh, this legislation was popular, excuse me, though particularly popular with the burgeoning labour movement. What the Immigration Restriction Act of the New Commonwealth did in 1901 was to tighten, deepen and exaggerate, if you like, those immigration restrictions. So I believe in the absence of the Federation of 1901, there still would have been restrictions of the colonies legislation, but they would have been more moderate, more flexible. Not because the colonies were more enlightened than the Commonwealth, but because they were less powerful. Remember, it was Britain who was uncomfortable with this anti-immigrant legislation because it upset Japan and in other places. It was Britain which was always pushing back. And the Federationists were quite clear. New South Wales couldn't resist British pressure, but a united Australia could, and in fact did. But whether that was a very good thing or not is another <laughs> question entirely. Now, for those tuning in, this is not Salvatore Babones. This is Tom Switzer filling in for Salvatore. Now, we have about 35 people tuning in and watching live. If you have a question, please type it into the chat box. Okay, William, another question. Without federation, what happens to, say, that high tariff war that we talked about? Trade protectionism was very much a central legitimating idea of nationhood. Without federation, what happens to trade protectionism? Would we all be free traders then? <laughs> well, I can't be that optimistic. There was <laughs> a, a rising tide of protectionism throughout the late 19th century. And there's a table in the, in the book, Fiery Cross, which I think brings out all the defections of all the politicians from the old free trade cause to the protectionist cause, including Edmund Barton and many others. But I think this rising tide, its high tide would not have been as high, um, but for federation. In the absence of federation, the, its high tide would have been significantly lower. I mean, let's not forget that in 1901, or at least on December the 31st, 1900, shall we say, New South Wales was almost perfectly free trade. Its legislation mm. only tariffed um, tea, and tea and sugar and alcohol and tobacco and opium. Everything else was perfectly free of a tariff. It's just inconceivable to think that without federation in 1902, New South Wales, at the depths of the federation drought, would have been taxing the imports of fodder from um, New Zealand. But in fact, that is what did happen under the, um, the new Commonwealth tariff legislation. So, yes, there would have been more protection, but there was, certainly would not have been as much of it. 
Now, you've also argued in their fiery cross of union, which should be available at all good bookstores, if you're not in lockdown, that is. <laughs> um, William, you make the point, uh, the Federation, if it didn't destroy local patriotism, it seriously held it back. How so? Well, I think that would probably apply most to um, the, the periphery, like Tasmania, um, North Queensland in particular. I mean, Tasmania was a, a sort of proud um, place. You can see that in the in the um, in the in the Premier Adia Douglas at the at the Constitutional Convention. Um, obviously, Federation reduced its status, and in a short, relatively short period of time, almost made it just a mendicant uh, state. I'm afraid on the Commonwealth. With respect to North Queensland, uh, mm. North Queensland was on the verge of separating from Southern Queensland, and rightly so. I mean, Queensland is a preposterously large state, the size of Texas, California, Idaho and Nevada combined. There should wow. be a North Queensland. It was on the verge of separating, but Federation ex extinguished that and therefore ex extinguished any possibility of North Queensland really articulating its own character. Yes. Well, when you talk about um, extinguishing or, or undermining the notion of local patriotism, tell that to the Western Australians today, William. Well, Tom, it has to be said that Western Australia was always the wobbly wheel on, on the Federation chariot. I mean, yes, it, it, it did join in, in 1901 quite enthusiastically, but that was almost, uh, almost an emotion and a, a sort of importunate grasp. In fact, very soon, very soon, there was considerable remorse on the part of Western Australia, including the Premier of Western Australia, George Leake, who had been one of the most ardent um, federationists. Um, and of course, by 1933, Western Australia was um, seceding. So yes, Western, mm. Western Australia um, has always been one state, which rightly has um, resented essentially being given a minor part to play in a drama scripted by others. Okay. Keeping with this theme of federation and trade, Bradley asks, without federation... Uh, what would have stopped the colonies from taxing each other's exports? Surely, Bradley asks, free trade among the Australian states was a great advantage. Uh, I think there's an important piece of demythologisation here. This has been brought out by relatively recent research, which distinguishes the tariffs which the colonies imposed from goods from the rest of the world and the tariffs which the colonies imposed from each other. Generally speaking, of course, there were exceptions. The tariffs which the colonies imposed on each other, particularly the larger ones, Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland, were very low. I mean, by today's standards, minor. I mean, perhaps even trivial, but very low and unexciting. So the, um, the vision that um, there was some sort of um, um, impetus to to enter Australian free trade, which is being held up by uh, the, the tariffs of the colonies of the 19th centuries, is largely mythological. Okay. Um, back to this question about Britishness and how a lot of Australians still saw themselves as British in the early part of the 20th century. When do you think Britishness ceased to be a central legitimating idea of nationhood, if you like? What, what did it require for things to change dramatically? Well... 
I think the um, transition period was between the end of the First World War and the end of the Second World War. If, okay, if so I was the to 20s be more and precise, um, it would, the lawyer's answer would be the best answer. Um, Britishness as a political or civil identity really ceased with the Statute of Westminster Adoption Act passed by the Commonwealth in 1942. And it, it it was rapidly passed then because the fundamental function of any sovereign state is to provide security for its subjects and citizens. The British Empire, quite plainly, could no longer provide Australian security. And so quite appropriately, um, in that by the end of the Second World War, I would say that the political and civil identity okay. of Australians yeah, it was Australian. So, so, the, so, so the Japanese threat did it, but what about the yeah. potential menace of German New Guinea? Surely that would have figured right. in the Federation. It's strangely, threat. though I guess it's strange because we have the benefit of hindsight, but strangely, German New Guinea in the 1890s figured, as far as I can see, not at all in Federationist rhetoric. Um, if, if they expressed any anxiety or frustration, it was with the French president presence in New Caledonia, rather than the German um, possession of New Guinea, curiously enough. Another question from Christopher on a related subject. The, um, the new Royal Australian Navy was the most formidable force in the Southern Hemisphere uh, with ships uh, gifted from the RN. Was this not a vital deterrent to Kaiser Reich during World War I? Oh, I've no doubt that the creation of the Royal Australian Navy in 1910 was the best thing which a federation did, at least in that period, up to 1914. So Australia went to war with modern destroyers, I mean, very modern destroyers, and a modern uh, cruiser battleship, the HMAS Australia. And it's, it's very plausible that the Germans up in their colony in China and their own naval ships um, lost interest, if you like, in the Indo-Pacific region because of the, um, the strength, the relative strength of the Australian Navy. Oh, sure. Uh, that's the one thing I think we can give thanks for, uh, of the First Federation of 99 in that period, the Navy. Okay. Now let's bring us to COVID because obviously the Commonwealth has been tested during the course of the last 18 months. Um, and you have written in your book uh, that it's only been in the last 18 months with COVID that uh, federalism suddenly was felled by an entirely different invader, a literally uh, invisible one. Uh, so to what extent does COVID, if you like, reaffirm your thesis? Well, it could in various ways. You could be pessimistic and say it shows that after 120 years, well, certainly, or almost that, of fostering some sort of common sentiment amongst across the Australian continent. What do we get? We get premiers spitballing one another, right? You, you know, so much for Australian unity, so much for Australian nationhood. You could be very pessimistic about it. I mean, a slightly less pessimistic way of putting it would be that, look, COVID just does bring out, a, does produce a divergence of interest between the states. And there's no getting around that, that the, the policy for COVID for New South Wales, which would be best for Western Australia, is not the policy for COVID for New South Wales, which would be best for New South Wales. There is just this, if you like, brutal divergence of interest 
and the disintegration of Australia over the past 18 months reflects that. Okay, we have a question here from Lydia in the Gold Coast, and she asks, uh, many conservatives and classical liberals, we believe in the devolution of power, that is, in states' rights. Have we been proven wrong during the pandemic? Lydia goes on to say, after all, many of us do not like the hardline authoritarian measures that many state governments have pursued. I entirely sympathise with um, Lydia. I would say the problem is, however, um, democracy working at the state level. I've, I don't, I, I'm sure that the, the voter, the middle of the road voter, the median voter is a strong supporter, a distinct supporter of these hardline measures. And so that's what state governments reproduce. So it's, you can sort of blame democracy, but I would rather blame the undeveloped constitutional status in some ways of the states. Um, it should not, it should be unconstitutional for such important legislation simply to be delegated to a health minister to, at the snap of the fingers, almost mm. a Twitter tweet to give orders about so extensively and so deeply about ordinary um, civic um, life. It shouldn't be, it should be unconstitutional for parliament to, um, mm. to not be um, in session and not meet. So I would think the answer to Lydia's um, well put question is in the constitutional deepening of um, the states and indeed the Commonwealth because um, the same problems operate at the Commonwealth level with respect to governance. Another question, Brooke, from Noosa Heads, but with the passing of the virus, William Coleman, should we expect the petition, the partition of last year to pass? It would be my prediction. For better or, or worse, Australia has always had a very strong um, tendency towards political integration. Um, it's only taken this, this crisis to, um, if you like, to halt that but I, I suspect it, it will continue um, once that integration, once that, um, for better or worse, once the virus sub subsides. Warren from Perth uh, has brought to my attention a speech that, of all people, Bob Hawke, uh, the Labor Prime Minister from 1983 to 1991, Bob Hawke, believe it or not, gave the Boyer Lectures, the ABC Boyer Lectures in 1979, a year before he was elected to Parliament. And in those lectures, William, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but he described the states of Australia as a, quote, dangerous anachronism with the boundaries representing nothing more than the meanderings of British explorers some 150 years ago. This is Bob Hawke. And he goes on to say that at the time of Federation, Bob Hawke said, such a deal made sense because each colony was its own independent economy. By the 1970s, and of course, remember, Hawke is speaking here in the late 70s, this was no longer the case, which meant people and businesses operating between states had to deal with a patchwork of different education, health and criminal justice systems. Bob Hawke concludes, we are not and have not been for a long time six economies, but one. William Collins. Well, the whole world is one economy. So on Bob Hawke's logic, you'd have world government. I really think that is um, quite feeble um, on Hawke's um, part. It is true that there is such a thing as state protectionism and the Hawke government quite usefully pressed back on that. So there was more mutual recognition 
of state qualifications. Um, there's no reason why that couldn't have been secured um, through negations through, through the state governments. And before federation, that sort of thing was going on. There was mutual recognition of naturalisations. I think Hawke's broader point, though, from those lectures was not a novel observation, but it, and it's often a, a point made by conservatives, and that is that we in Australia are probably the most overgoverned country in the world per capita. Um, generally speaking, um, federal countries, will, I think, will be uh, less governed um, because there is competition between the mm. states and competition between governments. And competition between governments uh, generally will make for less government, I believe, uh, rather than more government. Okay, final question. And remember, we're talking about William Coleman's book, The Fi Their Fiery Cross of Union. Let's return to the theme here. Question from John. John, thank you so much for tuning in. Question, was Federation much of an event in 1901? Did they even celebrate it? William? Well, it's a very good question. One of the myths of Federationist history was that it has claimed 100,000, maybe 200,000 people gathered in Centennial Park on the mid-morning of uh, January the 1st to witness the inauguration of the first cabinet. And it's, uh, I use some pages in the book simply to destroy that as a factual claim. Um, I think that if the, uh, 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 an English-Australian cricket test match um, under perfect weather on a Saturday afternoon wasn't getting more than 35,000 people, which is a fact, <laughs> Um, I think any suggestion that 100,000 people gathered is quite nonsensical. Obviously, some people supported Federation, but I don't believe in Sydney um, it was the kind of great national fate which Federation mythology has it. Well, the book is called Their Fiery Cross of Union, a retelling of the creation of the Australian Federation, 1889 to 1914. William Coleman, it's been a great pleasure to have you here at CIS on Liberty. Well, it's been a great pleasure, Tom. Thank you very much. And we like uh, testing ideas and we especially like books and theses that challenge the conventional wisdom. This certainly challenges the conventional wisdom. Thanks so much, William. And thanks to all of you for tuning in on Liberty. We hope to hear from you and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much.